Before we start the show, a reminder that you can hear more of our political reporting on the NPR One app. That's N-P-R-O-N-E. And you can also use it to discover new podcasts like Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It's a guide to the good stuff in popular culture, and we think you'll like it. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast for Thursday, October 27th, in our run of episodes every weekday until the election. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And let me just come clean. Um, Yesterday, uh, it was not Wednesday, October 25th. It was Wednesday, wasn't it? It was Wednesday. I knew what day it was, but I didn't know what date it was. Oh, it was the 26th. Yeah. So uh, fact check false. <laughs> uh, it's been a long year. Uh, thank so it you. It happens in a bubble. It was track of dates. I have no idea. Where I don't even know I? where I am most mornings I wake up on it? the campaign trail. I have to look out the window and be like, wait a second, where am I? The important I? thing is we are within two weeks of the election. Um, I just want to say before we dive in, stay tuned later in this podcast for an exclusive announcement about some vocalness swag potentially coming your way. If that means nothing to you, we will explain. But first, let's hear some sound from today on the trail. Michelle Obama campaigned with Hillary Clinton in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This was their first time on the trail together, and there were hugs. Seriously, is there anyone more inspiring than Michelle Obama? There you go. Um, And Michelle Obama spoke about Donald Trump's rigged election claims. So when you hear folks talking about a global conspiracy and saying that this election is rigged, understand that they are trying to get you to stay home. They are trying to convince you that your vote doesn't matter, that the outcome has already been determined and you shouldn't even bother making your voice heard. They are trying to take away your hope. That was Michelle Obama in North Carolina. Donald Trump spoke in Springfield, Ohio, and spent the first five minutes or so uh, of his speech on Obamacare. Obamacare is really, and you know this, a a catastrophic event for Ohio workers and is making it impossible for many parents to pay their bills, support their families, or get quality medical care to their children. Repealing Obamacare is one of the single most important reasons we must win on November 8th. That was Donald Trump in Ohio. And if you need to get caught up on what's happening with Obamacare, you can go back into your feed and check out our episode from Tuesday, where Scott Horsley laid down some knowledge. So North Carolina and Ohio are two big swing states this year, both kind of interesting, especially North Carolina, because it has traditionally been more of a red state. And now it is just a straight up toss up. And Ohio, which might not even be a bellwether anymore because Hillary Clinton could win without it. Yeah. But today we thought we would zero in on some other swing states that are. Uh, are mind-boggling that they even are swing states yeah. and, and talk about how Democrats are really expanding the electoral map, um, making states that have historically gone Republican into states that this year are close races, states like Arizona, 
which really might be up this year. as a, a place where Hillary Clinton has a strong ground game. And from what we can tell, Donald Trump doesn't have much of one or one at all. So John McCain was caught on hot mic early on because he's up for reelection, saying that he was really worried about Donald Trump being on the ticket because 30 percent of Arizona is Latino. And he was concerned that with Trump on the ticket, he could fire up Latinos to all go and vote because there's a significant number of Latinos who might not have been registered to vote already. And what you see in a place like Arizona is even though it was 30 percent Latino, just 18 percent of all voters in Arizona in 2012 were Latino. So that means that there's a growing wave that's coming because a lot of those uh, Latino voters are under 18 uh, and are not eligible to vote yet, but soon will be. And there are others who just haven't been politically active. But what you hear over and over again, not just in a state like Arizona, but also in place like Texas and Georgia, where, yes, there are there is a significant growing Latino population. You hear a lot of Latinos saying that uh, Donald Trump has fired them up to go and vote, to register. You're seeing registration cards at taco trucks, for example, something you had never seen <laughs> on every corner. Oh, this. my God. Taco trucks. They're taking over this election. Let's hope so. <laughs> OK, so let's turn to those other two states that you mentioned, Texas and Georgia. Let's start with Texas. Domenico, you got that? Yeah. I mean, there are two things with Texas that are really happening, both demographically. They're about white suburban women who are generally Republican leaning and Latinos. Take the first chunk. When it comes to uh, white suburban women, we just did a piece on our air on NPR uh, with Wade Goodwin, who went and talked to uh, some uh, folks who were going door to door. One person he talked to, Carol Reed, who's a longtime Texas Republican consultant. She kind of helped build the Texas Republican Party. She's been there uh, for three decades. Let's hear what she told Wade about Donald Trump and what his effect has been on uh, some suburban women in Texas. He has turned off women uh, pretty much all over America, and it really doesn't matter if you are an R or a D. Uh, and so the soccer mom today, while she cares more about economic stuff, there comes a point where there's a bridge too far. And it just, you know, I'm seeing already in North Dallas, I saw a couple I'm a nasty woman t-shirt. I mean, this is a woman who has organized for the Republican Party, who is going to vote for Donald Trump, who is having a harder time than she would have liked or would have expected. And that's why you're seeing in many cases why the polls are as tight as they are. That's one trench of it. The other is what we talked about with Latinos who are more fired up. We had also talked to uh, Democratic State Representative Rafael Anchia from Dallas, who's an up and comer in the Democratic Party. And he talked a little bit about what Trump's effect with Latinos has been. Where we stand today, Hillary winning Texas is very, very real. We have a candidate that has gone out of his way to alienate Hispanic voters. I think you're not only going to see that at the top of the ticket, but you're going to see it down ballot. The efforts of Donald Trump and Republicans, they're really delivering that vote in large percentages to uh, the Democratic Party. Now, is Hillary Clinton going to win Texas? Probably not. Yeah, but it's remarkable that we're even having this conversation and that the polls are this tight. We're having this conversation because you are seeing polls that are that have gotten close, even within three or four points in some polls. Now, most people expect that it eventually at the end of the day, because of the the strength of the Texas Republican Party, that you wind up seeing, you know, a high single digit win for Donald Trump, potentially. Who knows? But even if that were the case, 
that would be the tightest margin in 20 years in Texas. So the fact that we're having this conversation about- It's kind a, of the red state of red states in many ways, <laughs> yeah, culturally but, and so forth. But if you think demographically, it's really hard to swim against a demographic tide. And Texas is now majority-minority. In other words, non-whites are greater in number than white voters. Still, there is not a Democrat who has won statewide. The Democratic Party in the state has had a lot of problems. Uh, it has not been able to organize or fundraise in ways that it would have wanted to. It's been very demoralized after a lot of elections they thought would go their way that didn't quite. But this kind of grassroots effort, and whether or not Trump has awoken the sleeping giant of Latino voters, that's a huge, huge potential problem that Republicans are facing. Let's move on to Georgia. Sarah, you until very recently lived in the great state of Georgia. This is true. It's it's close. It's a close race. Right. I mean, this is another state that has been seen as a very red state to Republican senators, a Republican governor, the Republican incumbent senator who's running for reelection uh, looks to have pretty solid double digit lead over his Democratic challenger. But uh, if you look at the polling, Trump is running pretty tightly, just a few points the last time I checked the uh, the Real Clear Politics average ahead of Hillary Clinton. And, you know, if you look back even further for many years, really since the mid 60s, when a lot of southern states that had historically been Democratic, you know, shifted Republican because of the Republican southern strategy, uh, Georgia has been mostly a red state in most presidential election years, with the exceptions usually being Southern Democrats right. like Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Carter, who was from, from Georgia. Georgia. I should say Bill Clinton only won Georgia once. Anyway, <laughs> so that's the big picture. Right. Um, but as our colleague Asma Khalid has reported, that is a state that's seeing a lot of demographic shift. This is yep. also similar to what's going on in North Carolina. You have people moving in from out of state, um, often younger people, more diverse, more college educated, coming to Georgia, coming to places like North Carolina to work. All those groups tend to uh, be more likely in this election to vote Democratic. That is, I think, a lot of what is making this a closer race than a lot of people would have expected. Yeah, I mean, think about this. In 1990, 70% of Georgia was white. Now it's only 53-47, where it's white to non-white. So when you have that kind of influx, it's going to change your politics. One of the other things we've seen is that Georgia votes as one of the most highly polarized states in the country, where white voters almost exclusively vote Republican and black and Latino voters vote almost exclusively Democrat. And remember, President Obama only lost the state by five points in 2008, only lost the state by seven points in 2012. And the demographics have only gotten to a point that favors Democrats even more than they did in either of those two years. And you have a candidate like Donald Trump who has fired up minority voters. And this is why you have Hillary Clinton's campaign spending money in Arizona. You have a super PAC that supports her spending money in Georgia. Clinton's campaign spent a very small amount of money on some ads in Texas. And then here's one more state where the Clinton campaign has made some effort. Utah, because Utah. (laughs) Again, something no one would have ever predicted going into this election. Yeah. So we, we got a letter this week from Maddie, who lives in Utah. Her letter gets at why that state is so competitive. She writes, hi, NPR politics crew. I'm a college student in Utah. I just turned 18 and it is my first time voting. Utah is very typically conservative, but my family usually leans Democrat. So I felt like my vote wouldn't count in this sea of red. This year is a bit different. Utah is much more of a swing state than usual. 
unusual. Some polls show Trump, Clinton, and Evan McMullen in close competition. Most of the people I've talked to hate both Trump and Clinton. They also don't want to throw away their vote for a third-party candidate, but can't bring themselves to voting for the major party candidates. What are the chances McMullen wins and or Utah has a larger impact on the race? Thanks for the great podcast, Maddie. So thank you, Maddie. And the person she's talking about here is Evan McMullen. He's an independent conservative candidate, a Mormon and former policy director for the House of Representatives. Utah is about 60 percent Mormon. Could Evan McMullen win? Uh, it's possible. I mean, you've seen him in uh, striking distance. He would likely, if he were to win, because he's on so few ballots in the rest of the country, could be the person who wins a state with the least amount of popular vote of anyone in American history. Um, so <laughs> this is partly because of the demographics of Utah, right? Yes. I mean, this is this is this could only really happen in a place like Utah, where people are so conflicted about the Republican candidate. Yeah, I mean, you have a real moral question that a lot of Mormons have had about Donald Trump. You've had leaders in the state, popular leaders, uh, who have come out against Donald Trump and said they can't vote for him. We've seen Mitt Romney, who is maybe the most popular politician in the state of Utah, given that he's a Mormon bishop, uh, saying that he, you know, of course, could not vote for uh, Donald Trump. You saw the governor of the state, one of its senators. And a thing that I think we should look at here is that while there's the possibility that McMullen wins, him getting as much vote as he might, might actually open up a path for Hillary Clinton because Democrats in the state have not gotten higher than 37% of the vote since 1968. No Democrats won the state since 1964. Obama got only 34% of the vote, which is like the highest in like four decades. <laughs> now, Hillary Clinton's polling around that amount too. So you would really need McMullen to get a real high amount and wind up with Clinton, um, you know, just eking out Donald Trump or Evan McMullen if she were to put that in her category. And the reason that the Clinton campaign is trying to play offense in some of these states is simply to have, if she does win and if she is able to win in some unlikely places, then they would be able to sort of extinguish the idea of a rigged election. Oh, yeah, that's true. I thought you were going to use a different word, the M word, which I've started to hear, mandate. Yeah, and I, I think that that word is potentially, diff you know, even if she were to win a giant landslide victory, you know, she's going into the White House if she were to win. One of the most unpopular presidential candidates to win the White House, if they think that they're going to win a mandate based on an electoral landslide, you know, I think that they're in for a big surprise. There's no kumbaya coming after November 8th. It seems like an electoral landslide is at best for them an insurance policy against, you know, further suspicion about the legitimacy of the election itself. Sarah, let's talk about some reporting that you've been doing on another key demographic group, uh, evangelical women. Right. If you want to talk again about a sort of moral crisis and discomfort with Donald Trump and a group of people that, by and large, you would not expect to vote for Hillary Clinton or vote against a Republican nominee. That would be evangelical women. So uh, according to the Public Religion Research Institute, nearly 77 percent voted for Mitt Romney four years ago. And they ran a poll that had 58 percent of what these are white evangelicals, I should specify, white evangelical women in mid-October uh, leaning towards supporting Trump. In a lot, there have been a lot of women coming out in recent weeks. I mean, since the tapes came out where Donald Trump was recorded making the comments about groping and kissing women without consent, 
some evangelical leaders, Beth Moore, who uh, is a writer and, and leads a women's ministry, Jen Hatmaker, who's a very popular blogger, fills, you know, churches and arenas with women mostly who um, come to hear her talk about Christian living. And others have come out to really express anger and frustration at Donald Trump and sometimes at evangelical male leaders uh, for supporting him. And some are voting for Hillary Clinton. I'm working on a piece about this that will have coming in the next few days. And, and others, Marie Claire, The Wall Street Journal, did some good reporting on this as well about women who secretly, evangelical women who secretly support Hillary Clinton and aren't comfortable uh-huh. telling their friends and family because it's just not culturally acceptable. But I think, you know, we've talked for a long time about the rifts among evangelicals over Trump and the real discomfort a lot of evangelicals have. Uh, And it appears that that is even deeper when you look at men versus women because of some of the things that Trump has said. Can we talk for a second about priorities? Because I find it so fascinating. We were just talking about Utah and all these Mormons who are saying that they can't vote for Donald Trump. Now, they have an alternative option in Evan McMullen. uh, But there's something else about evangelicals, right? I mean, that they find to be uh, why they're willing to sort of compromise uh, on Donald Trump, even if they don't agree with his morals. What is the main thing for them that they really hold up, you feel like? Right. I mean, well, I think it's the Supreme Court. Yep. It's abortion rights. It's you know opposition to abortion rights. This feeling that the Clintons, in the minds of many, are sort of the worst possible choice. Anybody would be better than the Clintons, especially when it comes to these issues that are just bedrock issues for a lot of people. But I've also talked to some, again, uh, evangelical women who say, I, you know, describe themselves as pro-life and yet just cannot stomach the thought of voting for Donald it's Trump. It's like in that in that clip from Wade's piece out of Texas where uh, she said, for some, it's just a bridge too far, it seems. And one interesting thing with going back to Utah and, and the Mormon population is the concern isn't just about the video or about him talking about groping women or any of that. It's also about his Muslim ban proposal, mm. which he's he's sort of adjusted on. But Mormons have been historically a persecuted religion that were sort of run out. I mean, they're in Utah because they were pushed to Utah. Right. They fled to Utah. And so they're... And Mormons tend to be anti-abortion as well. Oh, but I don't course. think it's as big of an issue, uh, at least anecdotally for Mormons, as maybe it is for some evangelicals. But it's it's fascinating to me that Donald Trump, with that video and with the way he's talked about women over the couple weeks ensuing since the video, has really kind of turned Hillary Clinton uh, into this feminist hero with especially younger women. But you're seeing a big difference now post that video showing up in the data for 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 sure. And I'm sure you've seen on the trail. Yeah. And the nasty woman. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's part of mm -hmm. that's just all part of it. Okay, well, we've got to take a quick break, but stay tuned for our vocalness announcement right after the break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Okay, we're back. So let's explain this vocalness thing. 
way back. <laughs> I mean, it, it does feel like it was a long time ago. Uh-huh. On the second night of the Democratic National Convention, Domenico, you may remember this. I do. You, Sam, and Sue were up late recording that night's episode, and everyone was a little tired and punchy. And you oh, said man. this. <laughs> The Democrats, you know, for all the vocalness, you know, I don't know if that's a word. For, for I'll take it. For vocalness. It's a word. I made it up. Uh, vocalness. For, it's like an R&B group. Like for, everything, <laughs> for everything you've heard. Yeah, so Sam, because he's Sam, made he this picked into up a on thing. It. Yeah. I want to try a thing. Go ahead. I'm Sam. I'm Domenico. I'm Susan. And together, we are We're, vocalness. We are vocalness. <laughs> Opening for Alicia Keys. Uh, Alicia, or- please. <laughs> I can just see you guys walking with like a wind machine blowing in your hair. I could hear a little uh, of the Sue Philly accent there coming out, given yeah. that it was Philly. So <laughs> nice. There we are, and that's the uh, that's the origination of vocalness. Uh, we have not gone on the road, but we uh, we we act Is like. Is it a band. origin or origination? Yeah, are you gonna are you make up new? Words? Are you gonna make up some more new words just for this? <laughs> okay, so since then, vocalness has become a thing, and it's basically shorthand for the nine of us who you hear regularly on the show. Well, a really talented colleague of ours, Renee Clark, designed a vocalness poster promoting the 2016 Hey Y'all Tour, which we only wish was a real thing. But still, we have a very cool poster. This is kind of like the Hey Y'all Tour. It is a poster. It features illustrations of all of us, and we will tweet some photos of it very soon so you can see it. But more to the point, we want you to have one for free. Um, So right now, if you go to npr.org forward slash poster, you can order (laughs) totally free we even cover the shipping, a full-color vocalness tour poster. NPR.org slash poster. Go there now. Go now. They will go fast. Go now. It's free. This is not a pledge drive, although please give to your yeah. member station anyway. Please, please. Thanks to Renee for all of her great work on this. NPR.org forward slash poster. And make sure when you get yours, you tweet us a photo of where you hang it or... A selfie with it. You know, if you told me like 18 months ago when I was working at Georgia Public Broadcasting that I was going to end up <laughs> like a caricature of me, I was going to end up on a poster, I would just, I don't even know what to say right yeah. now. It's been, a, it's been a little bit of an absurdity, but in the fun. greatest way possible. And I just want to like give all of our listeners a big hug. <laughs> all right, let's read some listener mail. Here's a note we got from Chaka in North Carolina. Hey, y'all. I started listening to your podcast about a month ago in order to gain a little more insight into this election, and I'm hooked. I would like to know what factors go into where the candidates visit. I live in eastern North Carolina, not far from where Trump asked African-Americans what we had to lose. And the area where he delivered this speech is a rural area comprised mostly of farmland. He delivered another speech in another rural area tonight, Wednesday. I live about 40 minutes away in a city with two marine bases, and with the exception of Jill Biden, no one has made any campaign stops here. It seems to me this would be a prime campaigning ground. What determines where candidates make campaign stops? Is it the population or demographics? Thanks, Chaka. Sarah, you've been traveling with Donald Trump. What is the method? Yeah, I mean, I I don't have any deep insight, but uh, I can tell you that 
I think, you know, the big picture answer I've been given is that, you know, we target places we feel are important. And if you look at where Trump goes, it is very often in smaller towns. He goes to Fletcher, North Carolina, outside of Asheville. Asheville is a Democratic leaning city. He goes to, you know, suburbs outside Milwaukee, outside Detroit, places where the population tends to be whiter and more Republican leaning, friendlier crowds, uh, which, you know, is a logical place. If you're holding a rally, you want a big, friendly crowd of people that are likely to support you. Now, I'll say, though, going where they go tells us a lot about the kinds of voters that they're trying to rally because we have all this great county data and we know what the cities are made up of. and We know what the rallies look like. Uh, You know, for Trump, he's trying to go to places where uh, he can rally, you know, base voters, people who that he feels like he needs to get out the vote and and go and get to the polls. I mean, you saw him do a couple events in uh, places like Detroit, uh, but he doesn't do... But near, near Detroit. Right. He's not going to... Well, he did his tour with Ben Carson where he went to his old Economic neighborhood. speech. Yeah, but that there's a big difference. You can overlay the places that Hillary Clinton goes and that Donald Trump goes, and they can tell you a whole lot about their strategy about who they're trying to appeal to. And just in terms of Hillary Clinton, who I spend most of my time traveling with, um, they target their events based on where they need to hit some metrics. So, for instance, they had a goal of needing to register a certain number of people to vote in Ohio, in the Toledo area. And so they went and they did a rally in Toledo. The point of these rallies is both to get news coverage, but also to energize their supporters and volunteers who will then put in more volunteer hours to the cause, going out and registering people to vote. Now they're this week as early voting has really been ramping up. They've been exclusively going to states where early vote is happening so that they can encourage people to vote early. And that's a good point. You know, if you at every single one of these rallies, pretty much there are, you know, people handing out voter registration information, you know, even many times, you know, getting people registered to vote because they can do that right there on site. They know these are people who are excited and engaged and and it makes sense. And the other thing, I mean, this is fairly obvious, but still, almost all of these rallies are happening in swing states. Speaking of letters, guys, I have to say, I heard a letter that you all responded to a couple days ago uh, from a man in the UK. It was addressed to me, so I do feel like I have to respond. He he was talking about uh, me uh, being proud that I think it's a good thing for little girls that uh, superheroes have now surpassed princesses as the top Halloween costume choice, which I think everybody should be happy about. He was not. He saw it as me taking a swipe at the British at the monarchy. monarchy. Right. Uh, you know, maybe he was being a little cheeky. And I hope he was being cheeky. Didn't really feel that way. And he went on a bit of a defense of princesses. Look, I have no problem with princesses. Kate Middleton is great, but I will say this. There's A, a difference between an empowered queen and a subservient princess, okay? And as my wife would say, being a princess is not a career. So when you're talking about a empowering <laughs> empowering girls and empowering women, you know, just like little boys should not try to dream to be, you know, their career is not going to be base professional baseball player, most likely. They need something but else. You are shattering dream, man. Hey, look. You know, this is real talk. That's here. it's the reality. This is dad talk. Mm-hmm. OK. And the dad talk is have get figure out what you're good at. Find that career. Being a princess, not a career. Have a backup okay? plan. Princesses. On. There's, there's no backup plan. That is the A plan. And if you become a princess, Godspeed, but become the queen. 
Speaking of dads, we got a note from Walt in Illinois. He says, on Monday's broadcast, you talked about President Obama's comment at a Nevada rally. He said, what the heck and heck no about Joe Heck? They were described disparagingly as dad jokes. Hey, I like dad jokes. So does Walt. Here we go. (laughs) We know, Domenico. We know. (laughs) As a proud dad of three grown daughters, I am confused by this because all my jokes are great jokes. Oh, that's a dad joke right there. Oh, my gosh. The fact that the entire family groans instead of laughs is merely an indication that they inherited a poor sense of humor from their mother. Oh. In addition to great taste in men. Hmm. Walt from DuPage County, Illinois. Oh, my goodness. I used to be a reporter in DuPage County, Illinois. Hi. You used to be a reporter everywhere. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm going to work on it. And as my dad used to say about puns. That is two-thirds of a joke. P-U. Oh, gosh. That's not even even good. Uh. All right. Thanks, Walt. Keep dadding. (laughs) And don't forget that you can email us at nprpolitics at npr.org. Thank you for writing, if you ever have. We love hearing from you, even if we can't always respond. And shout out to Taylor in California, who just threw a proposition party. They all got together to figure out the California ballot. They had a whiteboard. And Taylor reports that wine is helpful. Always. And that's a wrap for today. We'll be back Friday evening. Again, the address for your free vocalness poster is npr.org forward slash poster. And as always, keep up with more of our coverage in NPR One and on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 